Thanks for tuning in and making Res Life a part of your day. Whether this is your first time listening or this is a part of your weekly rhythm, we are glad you're here. If you'd like to connect more throughout the week, check us out at reslife.org, download our app, or follow us on social media. It's time for today's message, so let's dive in. What the prophets declared in very specific ways, and that's, that's a key, in very, very specific ways, is unfolding right now in many, many ways right in front of us. But oftentimes it requires us to look past our own particular um, world, you know, up here in Michigan or in the United States. And oftentimes the focus is on the people of Israel, on the people and the nation of Israel. And so obviously we've watched as this irrational, what can only be honestly referred to as a demonic hatred of Israel, sweeping the nations, and not just among those who have a theology of hatred for Israel. There's a tremendous amount of hatred um, within Islam toward the Jewish people. Not entirely, I want to be clear, and I'm not maligning all Muslims or this sort of thing, but I mean, there's been like legitimate analysis of the Quran. And when you compare the Quran to Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf, there's actually far more hateful comments in the Quran toward the Jewish people than there is in Hitler's uh, Mein Kampf, which by the way means my struggle, or you could say my jihad. And in light of all of that, it's so essential that we do, that we have some honest discussions about what does it mean for us as followers of the King and the Messiah of Israel, what does it mean for us to stand with the people that Paul the Apostle said they were hardened in order that we who are Gentiles could come in? You go, wait a minute. So here's a people, for thousands of years, the prophets have declared, their prophets have declared, someday someone is coming. A Messiah, the the King of Israel is coming, and he's going to deliver you from the oppression of the Gentiles. And they've been waiting and waiting. But instead of the Messiah coming, I mean, he has come, but throughout much of their history, instead, enemies come. The Jewish people today, not today, but throughout history, have been the single most hated, hunted, murdered, persecuted people in the history of mankind. This little fraction, this people that make up a fraction of the percentage of the world population, have been repeatedly, consistently hounded and hated. And what's interesting is that there's, you know, even in the field, the academic study of anti-Semitism, of Jew hatred, which, of course, you know, in the, in the universities, it's largely a um, secular study. Right in the middle of it is this glaring mystery. And so you have all of these secular scholars, and they go, why, why does everyone always hate the Jewish people? And if you go from one episode to the next episode, you go from, you know, Pharaoh wants to kill all the firstborn Jews. You know, you've got multiple examples in the Bible, and the Romans tried to wipe out the Jews. And then you had the Christian throughout Europe, Christians persecuting the Jewish people in a really profound way. And then you've got the Russian pogroms, and then you've got the Holocaust, and you've got this. You've got Islamic Jew hatred. All of these different examples, none of them have any consistency. It's always a completely unrelated, different reason. 
But for some reason, in every generation, just there's this punctuated, irrational hatred that rises up that says, kill all of them. And right in the heart of that, the secular scholars, they go, why? We can't figure out. I mean, there's no reason. There's just this glaring mystery. And so there's a play on Nietzsche has this quote. And so there's sort of a, uh, a play on that quote, which says, staring into the Holocaust, peering into the Holocaust, is like staring into a black abyss and hoping it doesn't stare back. And the reality is, unless we as believers recognize the fact that there is a very real devil, a very real Satan, an evil, malevolent power, a very real intelligent being that is enraged at God's unfolding plan of redemption, there's no way we can explain anti-Semitism. So we start there, we acknowledge it, it's just a simple fact all around us, and then from there we acknowledge what the Bible says about those things, and we understand our role in the story. And then from there we realize that standing in solidarity with our Jewish neighbors, as I said this morning, I am first and foremost a Christian, but we're all called to be good humans, and we're all called to be good neighbors. We can all agree on that. I don't care if you're an atheist, a Muslim, a Christian, a Hindu, or as one southern preacher said, I don't care if you're a Hindu or a voodoo. Um, We're all called to be good neighbors, and we're entering into, we are in a moment. We're not entering in. We are in a moment where it's so essential that we're good neighbors to the Jewish people. So I ended the message by talking about Joel chapter 3. I'm going to kind of repeat that, and then we're going to look at some more signs and then talk about why it's so essential that we do stand in solidarity with the Jewish people. But it's not a great mystery. You can see it throughout so many of the prophets, Zechariah 12 through 14, Ezekiel 38 through 39, multiple passages in the prophet Daniel, Joel chapter 3 is a big one, where the prophets say that in the last days, all of the nations, it's really primarily Israel's neighbors, but it uses the language of all nations, will gather together and invade the land of Israel. And it's amazing that the prophets thousands of years ago predicted that, and we're actually moving in that direction. The constellation of the nations, it's circling, swarming Israel, if you will, as if the controversy of Zion is solved, somehow we'll have world peace. And so Joel chapter 3 talks about that. He says, Behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, after he restores Israel back to statehood, he says, Then I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now let me say something about the valley of Jehoshaphat. So just curiously, how many people here have been to Israel? Probably about the 10th. So many of you have seen, I actually think I have some pictures. I think I do have some pictures. I'm going to get to it. The Valley of Jehoshaphat is also called the Kidron Valley. So if you're on the, if you're on the Mount of Olives, which is opposite the Temple Mount. So you've, if you haven't been to Israel, you've seen pictures where you're looking over at the Golden Domed Mosque. You can see the Eastern Gate, or sometimes it's called the Golden Gate or the Messiah Gate. You're looking across, you're actually looking across what's called the Kidron Valley. So it's a valley that goes in between these two big hills. 
The Kidron Valley is also called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. The tomb of Jehoshaphat is down there in the valley. So when the Lord says, I'm going to bring all the nations to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, it's not specifically the valley, but it's essentially talking about Jerusalem. And then the Lord says, there, in Jerusalem. Okay, now this is Yahweh speaking. The Lord is speaking. He says, I will enter into judgment with all the nations there on behalf of my people, my inheritance, Israel. I'm going to make a little quick side point. There, is, uh, there are all kinds of these lies, these falsities concerning the Jewish people that are rising up throughout the nations right now. One of them, and you'll hear it a lot, it comes out of the, if you're familiar with the black Hebrew Israelites, okay, it's kind of a cult. Um, they've been around for a long time, but, you know, they kind of dress with a lot of like stars of David and, and they're, they're pretty radical street preachers. I actually got in an argument when I first got saved with one of them. And uh, I made the big mistake of getting in an argument, literally, with a guy who had a megaphone. Never argue with someone that has a megaphone. It's just, I've got a good voice, but it, it, was, it was a losing proposition. Um, but anyway, you'll see these guys out, you know, doing a lot of um, street preaching and so forth. And they'll often say, because they say they are the true Israelites, they'll say the people that live in Israel today are all fakers. They're not real Jews. They're fake Jews. And it's not just this cult that believes it. These ideas, through the power of YouTube, uh, I guess, these ideas are spreading. And I actually see people in churches often parroting these type of, these tropes, okay, these lies. And there's a whole bunch of them. But it's interesting here that here's Joel, here's God saying, in the last days, after Israel is restored, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem and I will judge the nations there on behalf of who? Those fake people who are not real Jews, who are not really Israel. No, God says on behalf of my people, my inheritance, Israel. The point is, anyone who tells you that all the people who live in Israel today are not real Jews, they are... (laughs) They're arguing with God. Okay, just side point. Just wanted to point that out. If you see these tropes floating around on social media or in the comments section of YouTube, disregard. The Lord goes on and he describes the things that the nations will do to Israel. He says, they'll, they've scattered my people among the nations. So this is what will happen under the invasion and occupation of the Antichrist. And let me just say this, in so many ways, what we just saw with October 7th, with this invasion from Gaza and kidnapping over 200 Israelis, it's a small prophetic snapshot of the far greater invasion that's coming. It really is. It's a painful, horrible reality. But all of the components of what the prophets describe, we saw it just play out in front of us in a much smaller fashion. He says, they've scattered my people among the nations as exiles. They've divided up my land. This is the big political hot-button issue today. The United States is talking about recognizing Palestine as a nation. And by the way, as soon as you recognize a nation, they have every legal right to any weapon in the world they can get a hold of. It's not just a matter of saying, we acknowledge you. It's you're essentially empowering Israel's enemies with with, some, with legitim, legitimacy to, uh, to obtain something better than just these little wily coyote rockets that they're shooting, um, but to obtain real weaponry. 
They've divided up my land. They've cast lots for my people. It starts using the language of human trafficking. They've traded a boy for a harlot. They've sold a girl for wine. And then the Lord goes on in verse 4. He says, Moreover, what have you against me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all you regions of Philistia? And as I highlighted this morning, the Lord here through Joel essentially just highlighted Hezbollah, Hamas. Both funded, by the way, from Iran. Both given ideological and financial and military support from Iran. But it's just it's amazing the degree to which the specificity of what Joel described is exactly what we see playing out in the news right now, on the ground, right in front of us. And then the Lord says, if you think you're doing something just, and essentially he says, I'm going to show you justice. I sometimes joke in my head and say, this is biblical karma, but it's not really karma, it's just called justice. Okay, so we started there. I'm going to shift now and highlight a few more issues that are unfolding in the earth right now that validate the testimony of this book. Okay, so you could just call this part two. So many of my messages begin in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is the verse where as soon as the fall happened, the Lord steps in. Okay, so Adam and Eve, they lived in perfect paradise, unbroken fellowship with God. They experienced creation as God intended it to be from the beginning. And the Lord said, I gave you one rule. I gave you one rule. Don't eat from that one. And they ate from it, and suddenly they experienced the pain of disobedience. And the Lord steps in and he speaks and he makes this declaration to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity. I am from here forward. There's going to be conflict or enmity between you and the woman. So between Satan, the serpent and Eve. And then he says, between your descendants, the descendants of Eve, the the righteous, I'm sorry, when he says your descendants, he's talking about the serpent. Now, Satan didn't literally have children. Okay. It's in the spiritual sense of where Jesus says, your father is the devil, because you desire the things that he desires. You do the things that he does. You have the same things in your heart. So the Lord says there's going to be this conflict between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, or your descendants, or your seed and her seed. And then the Lord introduces a mysterious he. He says, he is going to crush your head. You're going to bruise his heel. So as the snake is nipping at the heel, the heel crushes the skull of Satan. And this is the first reference in the Bible to the good news. This is good news. The day is coming when Satan is going to get his skull crushed. Okay, so hey, that's amen. Hallelujah. I can't wait till that dude gets his skull crushed. That sounds brutal, but no turn in the cheek for that one. So I've got a chart. Let's see if it uh, translates. I've got a chart that kind of lays out this scenario. On one side, you have Yahweh. Yep. On the other side, you have Satan. And then you have the people of God, the descendants, if you will, the seed of Eve. And then you have the seed of the serpent. And then ultimately, out of each side, one is the he, the skull crusher. And then on the other side is sort of the ultimate seed out of the, the seed line of Satan, and that's the Antichrist. Okay, now that 
chart that you're looking at, that basic storyline, the foundation of which is laid in Genesis 3.15, it plays out throughout the pages of the Old Testament and it expands. That story right there expands and grows until you get to the New Testament, the book of Revelation, and the Antichrist is very clearly delineated and we all know the Antichrist, he's the bad end time dictator, persecutor of God's people, right? That basic storyline actually plays out throughout the entirety of Scripture. Now, why are you getting into a theology of the Antichrist? You'll see here in a minute. So another massive, important messianic prophecy is Numbers 24. We're still in Torah. We're still back in the books of Moses. And this is the prophecy of Balaam. Balaam, in verse 6, he starts out. And, uh, of course, Balak was the king of Moab, and he had paid Balaam to curse Israel. But instead, he actually blesses Israel. And so here is his prophecy. He says, how fair are your tents, O Jacob. He's actually up on this hill looking down at Israel. And he says, how fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens beside a river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. You know, if you grow beside the water, you're going to be lavish, rich, well-nourished and fed. And then he says, water will flow from his buckets. It's, it's kind of similar to uh, his cup, my cup overflows, right? Like it's speaking of blessing. He's talking about Israel. Water will flow from his buckets and his seed will be by many waters. So you have the seed of Israel and his king shall be higher than Agag. So here you have the seed and the king of Israel. That's the Messiah. These are the key terms that are used early on to refer to this mysterious he that's coming. Here we learn that he's also going to be the king of Israel. He's not just the seed of Eve, the righteous skull crusher. He's going to be the king of Israel. And then it says, his king shall be higher than Agag. Now who's Agag? Agag was the king of the Amalekites that, that Saul fought against and defeated. You go, well, hold on. If that's true, what is this prophecy saying? The king of Israel will be exalted above Agag? Is it talking about Saul? I thought it's talking about the Messiah. So here's an interesting little bit of theology. So all of our Old Testaments that we read today in our Bibles, every English translation you read, is a translation of the Hebrew Masoretic texts. The Masoretic texts are medieval. So you're talking like 1,000 years ago. That's, those are the texts that we translate our Old Testament from. But the Dead Sea Scrolls are like 1,200 years older. Now here's what's interesting is that when you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's one fragment of Numbers 24. When you look at the Septuagint, which is again a very ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, and when you look at something called the Samaritan Pentateuch, so that's the books of Moses, the five books of Moses that the Samaritans use, again, a very ancient version of the Bible, all three of those, as well as three other Greek translations of the Old Testament in the first century, none of them have Agag. They all have Gog. You go, why are you getting into this weird detail? Because here's the thing is that later, and we're going to look at it here in a second, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, often referred to as the prophecy of the battle of Gog-Magog, 
you have this term, Gog. It's the first time that it comes up in the Bible other than Numbers 24. The point here is what Numbers 24 is highlighting is that on one side you have the seed of Eve, the Messiah, and on the other hand you have the seed of the serpent. This is the first prophecy where the seed of the serpent is named. And he's called Gog. Strange name, but it's basically saying the Messiah will defeat Gog. Why did I just take all the time to explain that? Because Ezekiel 38 and 39 is this towering, important prophecy in the Old Testament which specifically uses the name Gog. It's talking about the Antichrist. And when we look at it, it's highlighting Turkey and that the Antichrist will come from Turkey. Okay, so again, that was a lot of explanation, but it's important because theology matters and, and accurate theology matters. So when we look at this massive prophecy, let's see here. Yeah, I've got a map. You can put the map up there. The map is essentially highlighting the nations that are specified as being the primary invaders of Israel under the headship of the Antichrist, and you look at it, overwhelmingly the majority, and Gog is from the land of Magog, and he's the chief prince of Meshech, Tubal, Gomer to Gomer. Then over there you have Iran, then you have Sudan and Libya. These are the nations that Ezekiel, again, like 3,000 years ago, well, actually, it's about 2,500, 2,600 years ago, highlighted that would gather together and invade the land of Israel, and it highlights Turkey as the leader of this coalition. And you go, okay, so let's, again, go, let's, you know, we're gambling people or whatever, you know, let's go back. Okay, Ezekiel, let's see if you get this right. Let's just fast forward 2,600 years. Whoop, look at the news. Guess what? Turkey is absolutely emerging as a regional military powerhouse that is outspoken in its anger and its rage and its hatred toward Israel. Skip forward another map. Another critically important prophecy is Daniel 11. Daniel 11 is highlighting the dynasties that came after Alexander the Great Okay, And after Alexander the Great, um, you, ha you had his successors, you had these different dynasties after he died, and two emerged as regional powerhouses. One was the Seleucid or Seleucid dynasty in the north, that's basically Turkey, Syria, Iraq, all the way over to Iran, and in the south you had the Ptolemaic dynasty. Daniel 11 refers to the king of the north, uh, to the Seleucid king as the king of the north, he refers to the Ptolemaic dynasty as the king of the south. The king of the north in that passage is the Antichrist. You have two passages, massive mountains, towering mountains of Old Testament prophecy, both of which say, pay attention to Turkey. That's where the Antichrist is coming from that region. Whether it's Turkey or possibly Syria or Iraq, that neck of the woods, if you will. Okay, then I've got a picture here of a recent gathering that was in Istanbul. After October 7th, after the Hamas massacre, you had one of the largest gatherings in recent human history. Roughly 1.5 million people gathered on the outskirts of Istanbul. And the president of Turkey, Erdogan, openly said, Israel, 
They said, you better get ready because the entire Turkish nation is coming for you. They said, in the middle of the night, we will invade and we will defend and stand with our Palestinian brothers and sisters. Now think about this. The people that just invaded the land and massacred and killed families, raped, pillaged, and and took over 200 people, kidnapped them many of whom are still being held, and they said, we're coming to defend our brothers who just did that. You go, how did Ezekiel know that 2,600 years ago? How did Ezekiel know that? Because the Bible is true. The God of the Bible has spoken through this book, and we better pay attention. We absolutely better pay attention, and we better take these things seriously. This is not just, ooh, you know, the hair in my arm stood up we got to get our lives clean. As we approach the days that are coming, it's, there's no more time to play church. We need to, in the quietness of our lives, really get our lives ready because the storms that are coming, lukewarm Christianity cannot be sustained through the storms that are coming. When lives are torn apart, when the blood starts to be shed. Now, I'm going to really skip forward. Let me just make sure I'm on the right page here. I highlighted Joel chapter 3 for you all. I've got a picture there. If you're the slide person, I think it's the fifth to the last slide. It's a picture of looking from the Mount of Olives across to the Temple Mount. Put that up there if you could. Yep, perfect. So if you're on the Mount of Olives, this is the view that you have. You're looking across the valley. The Kidron Valley's down below. You can't really see it. You can see the big golden-domed Mosque of Omar over there. I've got the golden, the golden gate, or sometimes they call it the Messiah Gate because the idea is that's the gate the Messiah would go through. I've got that circled in, in white. And then the blue arrow is pointing to something to the south. Okay, so kind of get that visual picture. Jesus, in, in the Olivet Discourse, this is Jesus' sermon on the end times, and it's called the Olivet Discourse because he was up on the Mount of Olives. They were up on the Temple Mount. They left. As they were coming down, the disciples go, look at the temple. It's amazing. Jesus goes, I'm telling you the truth. Not one stone is going to be left. That whole thing's going to get destroyed. And they're like, whoa, what? But they knew that he was talking about the end times. They knew he was talking about the end times. They go, teach us about the end times. Teach us. And he sits down and he gives them a sermon about the end times. And in the midst of that, he says in Matthew, actually, let me back up one slide. Matthew 24, verse 21. He's talking about the last days and he says, at that time, or for then, there will be a great tribulation. We all know the term, the great tribulation. He says, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. So Jesus is drawing from the words of Jeremiah. He's drawing from Daniel chapter 12. He's drawing from prophecies that are very clearly laid out in the Old Testament. He says, a tribulation is coming that is unparalleled. There's never been anything like it in human history. And when we read the Olivet Discourse, we see that the primary focus of the Great Tribulation is in the land of Israel. He says, when you see these things, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I'm not saying that the Great Tribulation will not affect the whole earth. It will. 
but the epicenter, ground zero for the Great Tribulation, is in the land of Israel. Okay? Now, we looked at the picture there. I want to show you something. I'm kind of giving you a little, go to the next slide after the picture of Israel. See, you guys did a good job. Sorry, I, I did it all in white, and the poor person flipped it all to black, which took a lot of time. So the yellow circle there, that's the Mount of Olives. Okay, so Jesus was up on the Mount of Olives. He's looking across the Kidron Valley over at the Temple Mount. The Kidron Valley is also called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Now there's another valley to the south. That's where I had the blue arrow pointing. That valley is called the Valley of Hinnom or the Valley of Gehenna. And that was where they used to throw all their trash and dead bodies, and it was this burning ash heap. And that became a picture of the lake of fire. It became a picture of hell, Gehenna. Today it's a beautiful park, which is very strange. But the point is this. Jesus is, God is the God of object lessons. And as he was sitting up on the Mount of Olives, teaching his disciples about the last days, he was expounding upon Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3 says, I'm going to gather all the nations up to Jerusalem and I'm going to judge them there. Then Jesus gives a sermon. He says, a tribulation is coming to this area that is unparalleled in human history. Right? And then in Matthew 25, which is still part of the Olivet Discourse, he has the parable of the sheep and the goats. We know the parable of the sheep and goat judgment. And I'm going to read that and then wrap this up. Matthew 25, verse 31. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, so when Jesus returns from heaven and all of his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. What is this glorious throne? It is the throne of his father, David, that all of the, so many of the prophets talked about. The Lord promised to King David, someone will sit on your throne forever. King David, very shortly after him, just a couple generations, the kingdom was divided. Eventually it collapsed. The Babylonian invasion came and the tree was cut down. It's like, whoa, the Lord said someone's going to... The tree was cut down, but then came the shoot. In the landscaping business, we call these volunteers. You cut down a tree, a shoot comes up. And that's actually the word that's used to refer to the Messiah. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. So the Messiah is the one that will rule on the throne of his father David forever. When Jesus returns, he will restore the throne of his father David. To put this in terminology that we don't frequently use in church, Jesus is coming back to restore the royal Jewish monarchy that will rule the whole earth. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what Jesus taught. So he says, when I come back in glory with all my angels, then I will sit on the glorious throne, his throne of glory. He will restore the throne of his father, David. And then he says, all the nations will be gathered before him. Joel said, I will gather all the nations up to Jerusalem. Here's Jesus right there. The valley of Jehoshaphat's right in front of him. He says, then I'm going to judge all the nations. And he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. What was on Jesus' left as he was talking to his disciples? Gehenna. 
On the right is what at the time was the sheep gate. That's where they brought the sheep in, through the sheep gate. It was an, it was an object lesson. Jesus was expanding and expounding upon Joel chapter 3. And then he says, Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared. So those on the right, the sheep, enter into the kingdom, the millennial kingdom that was prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Because I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Now, Christian theologians have debated this passage forever. They go, who is he talking about? Is he just talking about the poor in general? And you go, those principles are true. As Christians, we should pay attention you know, associate with the lowly, care for those that are in prison, those, and that's true. Others say, no, it's talking about Christians. Christians should be nice to other Christians. Or is he talking about the Jewish people? You go, wait, what? Jesus just said a time of unparalleled tribulation is coming to Israel, such as has never been before. And then he says, when he comes back, what did he say earlier? I'm coming back for the controversy of Zion. I'm coming back on behalf of my people, Israel. My people, my inheritance. He says something is coming, unparalleled, this irrational hatred of Israel that will actually draw all the nations like a magnet to Jerusalem. And then he actually says he will judge the nations based on how they responded to that particular crisis. You go, hold on, Joel, are you preaching heresy? We're saved by grace through faith, not by works. I go, yeah, but the Bible also says that your faith, if it doesn't produce action, if it doesn't produce works, righteous works, it's not real. It's not real faith unless it actually moves and affects our lives. And the point is this, right now, this demonic, irrational, satanic hatred of God's people is gripping the world. And it's all prophesied. It's all predicted. And, we, and the Lord actually says, I'm gonna, it's going to be such a crisis that I will actually be able to judge whether or not people's faith is real by how they responded to this time of unparalleled crisis. We're in the early stages. I don't know timing. I don't know how you know, this plays out. But I'm just saying, guys, if we understand the biblical testimony, now is the time to stand in solidarity with the people who throughout history have been the single most hated, persecuted, despised, hunted, and murdered people in the history of mankind. And you go, but Israel's not poor. Yes, they are. Believe me, if you're, a Jew, if you're Jewish today, you go, where in the world can I even raise my children without someone hating them? This is where we are. My daughter, it's probably two years ago in high school, she goes, Dad... Why is it, she goes, why is it that everyone knows racism is bad? She says, but all my white friends, they know racism is bad. She says, oh, all my black friends know that racism is bad. But they all pick on Jews. Why is it that Jews are the only people that it's okay, socially acceptable to be racist toward? And I said, I'll be speaking at Res Life next week, honey. Why don't you tune in and I'll explain it to you. No, I'm just kidding. And she said, cool, whatever. Can I have $10? No. Um, we're in a moment, guys, where the rubber meets the road. It's time to stand up. It's not time to just theoretically think about these things. It's time to stand with God's people 
who are despised simply because of the calling, simply because of God's covenants and promises that he's made with them. And as I said at the beginning, they were hardened in order that we, the Gentiles, the the pagans could come in. And there's a debt of gratitude and there's an issue of justice here that we need to recognize. I'm going to pray. Sorry for ending on, as all my messages today have been, on such a sober note. But my heart's been absolutely broken. Absolutely broken. The scriptures say a brother is born for times of adversity. A friend is born for times of adversity. A brother is born for war. It's one translation. We're entering into that season. So, Father, we ask that you would strengthen us as your people. Open the eyes of our spirits that we could see what's unfolding. We could see that it is all going according to your plan. And then give us the strength. Give us the courage. Give us the grace to do what is necessary, to do what is right. When the world is spinning and we don't know what's up and what's down, help us to do what's right. Help us to be good neighbors. Help us to be good Christians. Help us to be good followers of you, Jesus. That we would stand with your people, your inheritance, Israel. We thank you, Jesus, that you opened our eyes and you made us your own. As we enter into the storm, as we enter into the storm, let the joy that's set before us strengthen us that on the other side of the suffering is glory and joy forevermore. We thank you. We look forward to that day when you split the sky and burst forth in blazing fire with your army of angels to save us from this present wicked age. We thank you for the beauty of who you are and we thank you for the beauty of our inheritance in you. We ask that you would strengthen us to walk faithfully and walk these things out. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. For more information, if you're in need of prayer or just want to connect with the community, go to reslife.org, follow us on social media, or email us anytime at reslife at reslife.org. We hope you have a blessed day, and we will see you again soon.